Support original and honest soccer content by joining the Footy Talks Society at patreon.com slash footy talks. For $4 per month, you'll get exclusive access to two additional premium episodes per week, free tickets for live shows, special members-only question-and-answer sessions with me, Stephen Caldwell, and much more. So head over to patreon.com and search Footy Talks. Tactical talks is the real thing. Players and coaches at the highest level breaking down the mechanics of the most important footballing philosophies. For this episode, I talk with my brother Gary Caldwell in a wide-ranging interview that includes the tactics used to face Messi and Ronaldinho as a player, and as a manager, the system that led to a 20-game unbeaten run and Erdwigan promotion to the Championship. Hello everyone, my name is Stephen Caldwell and this is a special series of podcasts called Tactical Talks. Tactical Talks will be conversations with some coaches that I know throughout the world and some of their findings and learnings throughout the years as they've developed their philosophies and ways of playing as coaches and indeed through most of them through their playing careers. And for the first one, there's no better man to start with than my brother Gary Caldwell. Hi Gary, how are you? Hi Steve, how are you? I'm not too bad, thanks for joining me, your episode one of Tactical Talks. Uh, I hope you've got some some wisdom to share with the listeners. I hope so, yeah, really looking forward to it. Uh, very passionate about football, love talking about football, so really looking forward to having a hopefully not heated discussion with you or a, a, a <laughs> nice discussion about how we, we see football being played. Yeah, I think we're probably going to be pretty similar in a lot of instances. Or actually, I know we're going to be similar because we often have discussions, you and I, pretty much daily on, on the tactics of the game. I'd say that we've been doing that for a number of years, maybe not in the early years of our playing careers, but I I'd, I'd think since certainly our mid-20s where we've been, we've been real students of the game, we've been lucky enough, we'll get to some of the coaches and managers we've worked under, but... We have been students of the game. We're, we're, we're very passionate about football and, and we talk at length about what inspires us and what we've seen within the, the global game. Yeah, I think so. And I think the biggest thing was probably we're both very slow. And that, <laughs> that as a player, uh, makes you have to think about the game if, if you want to play at the highest level, which we were both very fortunate to do. I think you have to be one step ahead in your mind. And to do that, you have to really think about the game, analyse the game, analyse your own performance, uh, look at other players in your position, look at other teams, how they set up. So from a young age, I think we both had a real understanding of football because if we didn't, we wouldn't have been football players. Uh, and that has, you know, gave us a good football career in terms of the playing background but also allowed us to go into coaching and management and different things after because of that knowledge we've built up over the years as players. Yeah, and I would say we both agree that predominantly when you're talking about 11 v 11, which is obviously a, a, you know, a football game, we would say that predominantly most of the time the better 11 beats the, 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 the lesser quality of the other 11. But we've been part of games and we've, we've played in matches where the tactics that a coach sets up or the way that the, the, the 11 went about it, they actually get a, an unbelievable result and they, they get a victory against a team who are, are probably or certainly technically better than them. And I think no better place to start. It's maybe a bit early, but it was a, 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 an infamous or a famous school game that we played in years ago that um, we played against the best team in the central area. We played against a school called Grahamston High and they had won the central title for a number of years, and we played our first high school game for Wallace High School, and uh, there was myself and, and you, and another very talented player called Paul McHale, a good friend of ours, stayed very near us in the, uh, on the street that we lived, and uh, some other good players, but we, we found a way to beat the guys against all the odds, and, and that was the first time that I remember where... Maybe not so much tactics, but certainly a, a style and a way of playing and coming up with a game plan really uh, confused the opposition and got us the result that we needed. Yeah, I think also, you know, thinking back to then, it is a long time ago, but the, the spine of the team was very, very strong. I think you played at the back, Paul played in midfield and I played up front, whilst 
that wasn't all their natural positions. The the teachers back then, I don't know if, if it was their you know their wisdom that they they kind of came up with that, or they just put us in those areas. But that does show that if you get your best players in the middle of the team, right up the spine of the team, then it gives you a better chance of of winning games. And we were, like you say, a, a newly formed team, but. The, the three best players probably on the pitch were, were in our team and right up the middle of our team, which gives us a massive advantage. I always think the middle of the pitch is so important to control. Uh, and if you get your best players, your most dominant players in there, then that gives you a, a greater chance of winning the game. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that that's the key, getting the, the right guys in the right positions to to go and dominate the ball. Uh and, and and have that possession which allows you to to express yourself and to play the kind of style that you want. So let's get to it then. Let's let's start off early beginnings. Uh, we we both signed for Newcastle, but but tell me about your influences as coaches. The first time that you sort of felt like uh, a coach was was really seriously impacting the way that you saw the game and the way you wanted it to be played. I think I've, I've said this a number of times. I think uh, the two coaches in my youth career that really impacted how I saw the game, wanted to play the game, and really continue to this day to have their kind of beliefs in how the game should be played would have been Alan Irvin, who was my youth team coach. He actually went to Newcastle as a, a performance coach. He worked with all different age groups, and I was fortunate he then he himself decided he wanted to take the team, a uh, youth team, and it was my first year as a uh, YTS at Newcastle. And I had an unbelievable education in football. And, and I've said this before, he, he taught you everything you needed to know to play the game. He taught you how to play out for the back. I remember one game in particular where I gave... We gave three goals away. I was at fault for a few of them playing in the midfield at, at, at the wrong time. And there was no, you know, lambasting after the game. There was no shouting. There was just a clear, we made mistakes. I knew I had made mistakes, but he identified those mistakes. And on the Monday morning, we went to work on how to play against that type of pressure that the other team applied. So then he showed me how to drop it into the striker. He showed me how to hit diagonal balls to, to get teams on the back foot and I, I remember that to this day and I would have been 16 year old then and, and still used those things when I was at Wigan and we were trying to play out and it was maybe tight I would revert back to something I learned when I was 16 year old and I think if a coach can have that sort of influence on you that lasts that long uh, it shows how good he was and then he kind of passed me on to Tommy Craig and seamlessly that transition worked because Tommy was of the same mindset uh, and just added just more touches to what Alan had already given you but he, he gave you that kind of more professional first team type uh, education in terms of the experience you need, the standards you need, the mentality you need to go into a first team uh, so both those men had a, a massive impact on me as a footballer but as a coach as well yeah, let's get into Tommy because I, I think he had such an influence on in both their careers. And, you know, as you're growing up and you're you're learning the game, you're getting the fundamentals from great guys like, you know, John Carver and Alan Irvin. And you get to that point where you're you're really on the edge of, of first-team football. Tommy was our reserve coach at Newcastle United. And some of the... The things that he taught me, and, and I'm sure you're the same, you know, going up for a header and, and trying to find your fullbacks and, and nodding in areas, which at the time was quite revolutionary. You know, a lot of coaches were telling you, header it as far back as you can, straight up the field and, and, and create that kind of English style game that we we sort of, we, we know and, and that was pretty uh, dominant at the time but Tommy was one who wanted to get the ball down and he also would coach us intensely on how to pass a football and, and how hard you need to pass it into people A to work on your touch and your movements in terms of controlling the ball but also the quality of passing needs to be there so that you, you can bring that ball down um, 
for me, that really stood for him, that, that idea that Tommy set up where, you know, there was a point I remember where the first team would finish their training and there'd be seven or eight hours training on the, on the reserve field by the side and they would come and watch us in a possession, a small possession or a, a passing drill because of the quality that we played with. Um, what were some of the, the techniques that Tommy used that, that stuck with you and then you would later take on in your coaching career? Yeah, I think the big thing was his standards. He was very demanding. And I've, I've done it myself where people have passed it to someone and it's got there. And I've said, no, it's not the right side or it's not where I want the ball to be. And Tommy was very precise in that. He didn't want you to pass it to someone. He wanted you to pass it to the big toe. And that became, you know, you're passing the quality of your pass and the standards that we set allowed you to keep possession because you were so good and, and were so accurate where you were passing it to somebody to receive was huge. But the biggest thing for me, these two kind of mantras were passing and pressing. But if you think, Tommy Craig coached pressing 20 years ago. We, yeah. were, we were getting coached at. And people go on about Jurgen Klopp and Gagan pressing and how you know, revolutionary as Tommy Craig was coaching it 20 years ago. But we lost the ball at our reserve team. The hunger to get the ball back was incredible. And we were doing a form of gig impressing 20 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so that, again, shows how good a coach he was and how kind of ahead of his time he was before. It was before pressing really became a big thing in, in European football, but definitely in English football. Uh, Tommy Craig was doing that in Newcastle Wales when we were 17, 18 year old. Yeah, I can remember the the sort of philosophy was that you just press everything in front of you. You don't worry about what's behind you. It's your, your teammate's responsibility to back you up. If you choose the right time to go and press, and of course we worked on that, the right times and the wrong times, then it was up to your buddy behind to get in behind and, and back you up because the first guy, maybe the second guy wasn't going to win the ball. It was the third guy that was going to get it. And uh, we'll, we'll get to it more in a minute, but when I was coaching with John Herdman, Canadian national team, when we recently beat the US at BMO Field, we had that exact philosophy and, and Tommy's ideas came flooding back into my brain because we set up you know, a pressing formation and a, a, a 4-1-3-2. So... The striker's first responsibility was to get to that centre half and the second striker, instead of coming back onto that deep midfield pivot, he was to take away the goalkeeper or make him play on one touch. And it was up to the other three behind, three midfielders, and it could be any three because we wanted the, the two and the three, the front five to be fluid, had to then make sure that they were observant and ready to go and press on the next pass to the point where you just suffocate the opposition, is that the kind of style of, of play A, that Tommy taught you and, and, and that you still like to see? Is that the kind of football that, that you want to play with your teams? Yeah, without a doubt, I think it is. But it, pressing isn't actually that complicated a, a thing to coach. Yes, there has to be a team structure and an understanding to it, but it's a Actually, the biggest thing for pressing for me is desire and hunger. Yeah. That, you know, you, you are going to go. And if that guy does go, your teammate's going to follow. And, and that is pressing put simply. Yes, there is who presses, where do we press, is it high, mid or low. There's different things within that. But the biggest thing for pressing is, have you got a group of players that one are fit enough? Because if you've not got a fit team, then you can't do it. If you've not got a team that's willing to go and do it, then you can't do it. So it's pressing for me is more about the mentality and the approach to it rather than the, the structure. The structure is fairly easy to set up. It's, it's quite easy to identify the weak point in another opposition, whether it's the left or the right centre-back, whether quite often if the left centre-back is, is right-footed as, as you were, I would often put the ball to there and then that would be your kind of trigger for a team. So it's very easy to, to find that trigger. The, the hard bit in pressing is, can you get 11 players that one are fit enough and two have the mentality to, to buy into it? If you do, then you see the success you can get like Liverpool are shown like now, like Man City have shown over the years, Barcelona under Pep Guardiola. That constant pressure 
gives you the ball back and then you have control of the game when you do that. Yeah, and the key is you win the ball back in that higher area, isn't it? And then you've, you've got less time to get to the opposition goal and try and put the ball in the back of the net. Uh, you've, you've worked under some incredible coaches. We're talking about two there and Alan Irvin and, and Tommy Craig. I'm, you know, the list goes on. Tony Mowbray, Gordon Strachan, uh, Roberto Martinez, Gary McAllister, Eric Black, uh, head coaches and assistant coaches all over. I'm probably missing some out, but Tommy Burns, you know, some unbelievable coaches uh, throughout the years. When when were you aware of the at the professional level playing first team, the effect that maybe a Tony Mowbray was having on you or or uh, we'll get to Roberto more in a minute, but some of the earlier influences after your kind of fundamentals, your Alan Irvin, your, your Tommy Craig, when you're actually breaking into the first team at Hibs and then indeed your move to Celtic. I think Tony Mowbray was my first professional manager that I kind of felt really comfortable with in terms of he wanted to play the way I wanted to play and the way that Alan and Tommy had taught me. He came in as a, as his first managerial job was Hibs and he came in with a really clear idea, a really kind of strong belief in this is what we are going to do. And like I just spoke about then, he was lucky in a sense because he had young, hungry, energetic players. So he was he, he kind of fell on, he either he got the job, but he fell on a group of players that, you know, think thinking of myself as a manager, you know, you'd have been delighted to fall on them because one, everyone in that team could run and, and had the energy, especially in midfield to, to front. Uh, and two, we were all eager to learn, willing to listen and follow whatever he told us to do. So it was a fantastic period for the club and for, for myself, for everyone that played, because we played some brilliant football. Uh, made mistakes, were pretty naive at times, you know, tactically. Uh, we'd give goals away cheaply at times, and which cost us in terms of really going on to be successful. But in terms of one-off games, I remember going to Parkhead uh, when Celtic were, you know, going for the league and just totally dominating them. They couldn't get the ball off us because of the way we worked in training, the game plan we had, and and we could go and carry it out. Even at you know Celtic Park at Ibrox, we could go and do that and give them in a one-off game, give them some real problems. And it was a a really enjoyable time to to play under him. And and he's went on to have a, a fantastic career in management as I, as I thought he would. And was he stuck to a certain formation, Gary, or was he was he like open to changing that? And you know, what what were his key, I guess, philosophies in terms of playing the ball and 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 then you know pressing the ball when you didn't have it? Well, his, his big thing was playing out to the back, which wasn't really done in Scotland back then either. You know, you're you're talking it's. 15, 16 years ago now, you know, which yeah. is quite scary to think. But that 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 wasn't done in Scotland. The goalie didn't roll out to a centre back in Scotland back then, unless it was Celtic or Rangers and they had the best players. But uh, for a Hibs team to, to go to Parkhead and and say to the centre half, not take it off the goalkeeper and bring it out, that that was unheard of. So he, you know, he was really brave in that regard, and and he he wanted people to get on the ball and pass. He was big on controlling the middle of the pitch. So when we did play with white men, people came in inside the pitch and, and full-backs would go high. Uh, and then when, to win it back, we, we tried to just win it back with aggression and our, our energetic players higher up the pitch. We had two charismatic enigmas, whatever you want to call them, <laughs> up front, Kyle Connor, Derek Reardon, who were probably the two that didn't quite buy into the the work ethic that, that we had, but were two real talents. One had physicality, could score goals, could hold the ball up, w- was quite powerful. Uh, the other, Derek Reardon, was just one of the best talents I've, I've probably seen at, at how he could hit a football with, with both feet. Uh, and they were the only two, so we had to... He was very clever. He would come up with game plans that would kind of cover their deficiencies in terms of off the ball. So we'd have like Scott Brown and Kevin Thompson, who were fantastic midfielders, energetic. Scott played actually a lot higher than he does now. 
when he was younger, and he would do the, the work rate, uh, the work back pitch to, to cover for those two players. And then when we won it on transition, those two players were deadly. If we got the ball to them, they could they could really hurt the opposition. So he was clever in that regard. He didn't have, you know, you must follow these rules, you must do this. He, he used every individual and the talents that they had to, to provide the best for the team. I think, I think Scott, you bring up Scott Brown there and I think he's underestimated tactically and, and that's probably because he has been sitting for a number of years in the, the base of Celtic midfield just kind of plugging gaps but you know when you think back to that that lad who burst on the scene and what he was capable of long busting runs and goals through the midfield and, and like you say the, the, the tactical now is to, to know where and when to to press and to, to fill in areas. He, he was an exceptional player, wasn't he? And, uh, you know, he's had a wonderful career, but the player that he was back then was was, was so energetic and enthusiastic. It was it was a joy to, to watch him. I'm sure it was great to play with him. Yeah, he was. Even when he first signed for Celtic, he was a different player to he is now. He was box-to-box, he scored yeah. goals. Uh, and he, he's had to kind of adapt over the years. He's had some, you know, bad injuries or, kind of difficult injuries that he, he couldn't shake off for a while uh, and he's now adapted his game and, and shows his you know his football brain and, and the tactical awareness that he has that he can drop in there and play that defensive role really well not only just in Scotland but in Europe as well so uh, he was one of a number of really good players young players in that team who all went on uh, to, to have good careers of course, you worked with Tony Mowbray again at Celtic in a second spell when he, he came over as manager. But first of all, the man that took you to Celtic Park was Gordon Strachan. And uh, we've already spoke about the dominance that, that Celtic and, and indeed Rangers have in, in Scottish football. But I'm interested to know how you guys adapted in, in European nights, probably playing against teams who were, were technically better than you and you know, the results are there. You can see you beat AC Milan at Parkhead. You had some amazing runs and results. And last 16, I think Milan beat you guys one year. Kaka was awesome. He scored the goal in extra time just to knock you guys out in the last 16. So how how did Gordon adapt to European football? And, and, and what, what was that like mentally for you guys where you're dominating every single week in the Premier League and then, you know, you're, you're playing Champions League and, and suddenly you're the sort of the team that might sit back a little bit or play a different style because of the quality of the opposition? Yeah, it was a challenge in a sense that you were, you know, every week you were expected to win. You had better players and, and you should go out and win. And then you go into a Champions League night. At home, you're still expected to win. And we had an unbelievable record. The club had an unbelievable record for a number of years in the Champions League. Uh but his, his tactic actually didn't change that much. And I think that was a strength that he never, ever showed weakness. He never, ever believed that we needed to sit in to win a game of football or, or kind of respect the opposition too much. Yes, we had tactical switches. So, for instance, if we played a 4-3-3 uh, and, and it, on the Saturday, it might become a four-five-one on on the kind of the Tuesday against an AC Milan or a, a Barcelona, and we might ask McGeady and Nakamura to just play a little bit more tucked inside and and be narrow and compact in midfield and give us numbers in midfield to, to like we spoke about to try and dominate that area. Uh, we might not ask the fullbacks to go as high as we normally would, so it wasn't like he kind of said, right, we're going to rip up what we're doing on a Saturday and go really defensive now, because I think that would send the wrong message to the players to say, the manager thinks you're inferior. He just tweaked what we did to, to give us uh, kind of a more of a chance of winning against these top teams. In fact, I'll never forget the night we beat AC Milan. Uh, they had just won this competition that was in... Kaka and Zaghi, Seedorf, Maldini. It was just a, an unbelievable team. And they came to Parkhead and it was pouring a rain, like pouring a rain for days in Scotland. And the pitch was really wet. And it was actually Pirlo as well was in midfield. <laughs> and he said to us, the, the big thing that stuck in my mind was, 
He wanted us to get close to them and be aggressive and, and kind of show them respect, but not too much and get in their faces. And he said before the game, and I mean slide tackle. <laughs> and that was the big thing. And you talk about tactics and how you win a game of football. And that stuck that we weren't to get a yard away from them. We were to hit them. We were to get close enough that we made contact and we were to throw our bodies in and put, you know, and Pirlo that night, uh, he, he hardly got a kick because we were so close to him and put him under so much pressure. And that stuck in my mind. And we go on nowadays about the intricacies of tactics and, you know, people coming off the line and different things. And we won a Champions League game against the winners of the European Cup because the manager wanted us to slide tackle and get close to people. And, and the basics of football, if you get them right, it's amazing how much or how far it can take you in terms of the games that you can win against the best players in the world. Yeah, it was an incredible night at Parkhead. Parkhead sorry, so many, uh, so many European nights have been, but I'm thinking the one that maybe wasn't so incredible against the, the mighty Barcelona. Uh, where they were just absolute standing. I, I I don't know the facts. I'm going to let you tell the story, but I think they had over 700 passes. Um, I can remember Marquez playing defence, and I'm pretty sure Messi and Henri were there as well. But please go into some details on what you saw that night from from that Barcelona team, and and, and tell us how their tactics impacted you as an opposition player. They were. Uh, incredible. In fact, Gordon joked, we, we used to get Prozone stats, used to get the, the sheet after the game. You still do, but it's more uh, online and, and, and more detail now in terms of the stats. But back then, you used to get a sheet and on the front, it would have the teams, the score, and then it would have passes below it. And Gordon was convinced that it was a mistake because Barca, I think it was 792 and it was nearly 800 passes. And he, 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 he told us, and in his way, joked to say, there must be a mistake because that's impossible. And we had something like 120. And it just shows you how dominant. You couldn't get the ball off them. You actually couldn't get the ball off them. And you talk about Marquez, and then relate it back to Alan Irvin. We tried to press and get after them, like, like I said in the Nacy Milan game at home, get in their faces, make it uncomfortable for them. And Marquez, when we did we just hit 70-yard diagonals to Ronaldinho, who did not leave the left wing. He yeah. stood on the touchline. So when we were pressing, he didn't come in to help. He stood on the touchline and made the pitch massive. And Marquez had the ability to just hit diagonals. And as soon as he'd done it, he was 1v1, and we were in massive trouble. So we had to then go, oh, well, we're going to sit off you now. And as soon as we'd done that, they just controlled the game and the tempo and, and passed the ball about. And even we, we spoke about the only way we felt we could really hurt them was set pieces. So wide free kicks, corners, we worked on a lot. And the first wide free kick, I'll never forget it, was maybe 40 yards out. 40, 50 yards out. Their line was 30 yards out. <laughs> because they obviously went, they're going to bombard us. So rather than sit deep, we're going to go high. And, and we, we didn't know. We'd never seen it before. We thought, yeah. how, how do we get in here? And the, the kick would go out of play or we'd be offside. And, and they just totally stopped our main threat. We actually scored two goals from open play, from headers. But from set pieces, they killed us because they'd done their homework tactically and stopped our threat that we thought could hurt them by coming up with a solution uh, to, to basically just stop uh, any aerial threat that we could have had in the game. So uh, it just shows, even though as good a team as they were in possession, they were still aware that we had threats that could hurt them and they came up with a, a solution to, to stop it. So you mentioned Ronaldinho out wide in the left. Was it was it a lopsided three? Was I think Henri played in the right. Did he play in the right that day or, or someone else? But anyway, whoever was out there, were they, were they more inside or... What was the what was the difficulty uh, kind of spreading the pitch out with the just the talent of the the personnel that were in the Barcelona shirts? Uh, he he was kind of he was coming to the end, so he was a bit he was still a, a magnificent player, but again a little bit lazy, a, a little bit kind of doing his own thing. But the rest of them had a rotation that was just impossible to play against. Where 
when the, when the striker dropped in, if you went with our midfielders ran behind or the wide men came in off the side, if you didn't go with the striker, you could get turned and, and or create that overload in midfield. So they had fantastic understanding of movement on the pitch and, and when to move at the right time to, to give you a problem. And um, Messi scored two amazing goals. One where he, he made that run from in to, uh, out to in and behind the centre-back. Uh, and the second one, he, he picked up a ricochet and actually rolled it around me in the box. It was just, his feet were so quick that if he got if he got you in 1v1 situations, then he was unplayable. So a great experience and, and amazing to see like real world-class players playing at their peak. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating insight for sure. And uh, some amazing nights that we can remember watching that you were out there. Um, and then, you know, away from Celtic, on to English football, Premier League, Wigan Athletic, uh, Roberto Martinez went all out to get you to sign for Wigan Athletic. He saw parts of your game in terms of your, your ability to pass the ball as a central defender. That was absolutely essential to the way that he wanted to play. Of course, a guy that I worked with for a year as well as a teammate of yours at Wigan, but let's get into Roberto. And I, I think for me, first and foremost, this was the the real moment where my eyes were opened, I have to say. I, I spent a year with Roberto. I played 15 or 16 games that season, which was way below what I wanted to play, of course. But the education that I received under Roberto and the, the, the deep debates, discussions and quality time that, that uh, Roberto Martinez and I used to get to spend in the lunchroom or, you know, pitch side or, or indeed pre-match or, or in a hotel the night before a game was was uh, was priceless, to be honest. And, you know, I want to know your thoughts. You were his captain. You were there for a number of years. Did he have as much an effect on your development of how you saw the game uh, as he did for me? Yeah, without a doubt, I was 28. I had won leagues and cups. I'd played Champions League and, and played international football. Always wanted to play in the Premier League. And and he took me to Wigan and actually, on top of all of that, showed me a different way of coaching, a different way of managing, a different way of playing. Uh, and he is obsessed with football. He's probably everyone I've ever met in football, he's probably the most obsessed about the game in terms of he will watch any game of football anywhere in the world. He will dissect the tactics of it. I think that's his big strength is his tactical awareness and his understanding of how teams want to play, how you play against them. Uh, but I had yeah, fantastic years as his captain. I think that was one of the main reasons he signed me. Yes, for the you know, bringing the ball out to the back, but more for the leadership qualities and, and to set the standards within the, the dressing room. When I first came to the club, I was a bit like, what have I done? I had come from a, a changing room at Celtic where there was fights every day. Every single day in training, there'd be a fight. And I mean, like fisticuffs, yeah. like Scottish, proper people, you know, hitting each other. And that was because we wanted to win and we had a team of winners. And my first day at Wigan, I remember thinking, this is strange. The, the training was slow, the tempo was poor, the standard was, was just non-existent. And I remember after about 10 minutes of the game at the end, I just went in and hit someone, like went right through someone. And the whole session kind of stopped. And they looked at me as if to say, what, what is this guy doing? <laughs> and that was, I could see Roberto kind of looking going, perfect. Because he wanted somebody to, to say, no, this is, we need to drive this club forward and, and increase standards. And we did that over the years. We got, you know, more players, yourself. Uh, Sean Maloney came in. Ben Watson got, got in the team. Uh, we had Mike Pollock behind the scenes who had great yeah, standards. Uh, he was the sub goalie, but every day he's training, everything, his work ethic. And we started to, to improve that uh, in my time there. But Roberto, in terms of his preparation and his, his training, was, was as good as I've, I've, I've ever seen. And, and I've taken a lot of that into my coaching and, and management career. I, I, I'm glad you brought that bit up last year because I was so impressed with. 
uh, you know, the game plan for the Saturday, which, you know, always involved playing football, of course, but had different elements to it. Started on the Monday, didn't it? And it, and it went through. So there was a real, um, there was a real point to why you were doing possessions or games or exercises or passing drills. There was a real, um, you know, build up in the week to to what that game plan was going to be in the Saturday. We we did a lot of one v ones because we had some talented players in, in wide areas, and and I felt like that helped me defending, but. He got sessions wrong, it has to be said. You know, as a coach, there was sometimes it was an awful session, but when you went back to that session, it was a hundred times better the second time and, and even better the third time. He, like, he was such a student of the game that he thought about what he put on, he, he then analysed it, decided what was good and what was bad about it and, and tweaked it. And, and, and that, to me, was, was massive because I... Work with some good coaches, but I, I work with guys who were about uh, routine and continuity. Whereas this guy was not afraid to to mix things up and try things that were a little bit different. And and I thought that was really special quality. As yeah, like like you said there at twenty eight, I had always been a kind of passing possession small sided game. You know that yeah. was the the coaching template on a Thursday you'd do maybe an 11 v 11 and start to think about who you were playing, what shape you were playing against. The Friday, maybe set pieces in game. But with Roberto, it was different. On Monday, you were thinking, right, how are we going to play? And you were constantly getting asked to make decisions because that's what you're going to have to do on the Saturday. So everything was geared towards the game and the way we were going to play the game. So that was where the, kind of, the difference lay. And I think more nowadays that happens, but still probably not as much as you would think in terms of coaching to, to the game. Uh, so he was brilliant in, in a sense of, of doing that. His sessions were, like you say, very thought out. They were methodical in terms of everything had a, had a reason to it. Yeah. And sometimes, like you said, he was great. I could discuss it, be his captain. I could discuss things with him and why did you do that? And, and yes, he didn't always get it right, but the next time he tweaked it, he did. And, and that, to me, as a good coach, you have to be brave, you have to be creative. And sometimes it's not going to work, but there'll be reasons why. You find those reasons and, and you make it better. But ultimately, everything was geared towards how we wanted to play on the Saturday, who we were playing against, and making players better during the week at making those decisions they're going to have to make on a Saturday. And that, to me, is, is good coaching and the fact he'd done that with the group of players he did, and even the way he seen forward. So when I signed, he said, we're going to play three at the back. And we didn't play three at the back for a year and a half. <laughs> Probably just between a year and a year and a half after I signed. Yet when I signed, he said, we're going to play three at the back, which I was comfortable playing four or a three. But he said, I'm going to play in the middle. He explained it all. And then it took over a year for him to then make that happen. So that shows you how his mind was thinking and where he wanted to take the team. Uh, I think it goes without saying, he was very fortunate he had a chairman that loved him, that backed him and gave him that time because in modern football, you don't often get that kind of time to see it in the future and have that uh, idea to, to where you want to take the team. Everyone has that idea, but quite often as I've found and, and most other managers find, you don't get that time if results aren't great. And under Roberto, we had a nine-game losing streak. We lost 9-1, uh, we lost 8-0, uh, but the chairman stuck by him because he, he'd seen how hard they worked. And rightly so, he stuck by him uh, because of the, what he brought in terms of the survivals over the years and then obviously uh, winning the FA Cup and an amazing day at Wembley. Yeah, it has to be said, when he, when he went to his three to back, even though you're saying it's a year and a half after he first mentioned it to you, it was still ahead of most managers at the time. And lo and behold, a year, a year and a half later, a lot of people were playing three at the back. I think there was a season in the Premier League where every single team had at least a few games with three at the back. So it shows you he's always thinking. I always think of him as a guy who... Um, is trying to create overloads all over the field. To me, that's the, the essence of 
quality football, can you create overloads in, in areas of the field? And I, I think he felt the three five two was a was a real way of doing that, was allowing someone to go and join into the, the next line to create that overload and, and that's something that's always stuck with me. One thing that, that's big on my mind, I tell this story a lot, but it really came to the fore in twenty eighteen, summer twenty eighteen, when I saw his Belgium team play the same style but I'll never forget when we went to Stamford Bridge and we were playing the mighty Chelsea we were down near the bottom of the league uh, I think I was on the bench I wasn't playing you were probably playing and in the lead up to that game he said we're not going to play with a striker we're going to play with two wide strikers and I couldn't believe it I, I can remember us chatting on the bus and you know in our little group saying what the hell is he thinking who doesn't play with a striker and we went to Stamford Bridge we played with Zogbea and, and Rodaega in wide areas and we played what was the start of a false nine we didn't call it a false nine then but we basically played with more in the midfield two wide strikers and we almost got a result that day we really hurt them a number of times with that quick exit pass out to to uh, Hugo or to Charles and they were then running it uh, you know a back two who were very central it was genius and he did it against Brazil for Belgium um, tell us your your thoughts about that and, and can you remember your stories and, and probably being you were out there on the pitch weren't you you were playing yeah it was it, it was it was one of the first it's not the first ever to play the 3-4-3 the, the it, it started as a 3-4-3 when, when we went to three at the back, uh, and like you say, he was kind of one of the first in this modern era to go back to three at the back. But he, to play three four three, then was very brave. It, it was seen as very attacking, and we were down the bottom of the league. Um, and it took us time to, to understand it. But then, just like we spoke about with different players and the characteristics of different players, once you get different players in your squad, you have that ability to adapt and be creative. Sean Maloney, when he came, uh, gave him that ability to play that false nine and that number 10 because he had that tactical awareness and work ethic that he could drop back the pitch and help the midfield. Uh, and he knew when to be high to, to, to join in attacks as well. But originally, Sean played on the left with, with Jean Beausajour. And again, that was a brilliant understanding. Sean coming in to that number 10 position and Jean going round. So all great formations are great formations because of the great players and the characteristics that each player has to bring to that position. So, like we spoke about, Belgium done it amazing and it was Kevin De Bruyne that played yeah. number nine that night. You know, and different uh, characteristics to Sean Maloney, more of a passer, but understanding of when to drop into midfield. we done it in the cup final against uh, Man City where... We had Aruna Kone and Callum McManaman, who's actually a winger, playing as, as what people thought was a centre-forward, but he wasn't. He was playing as a winger. And Aruna Kone was a centre-forward who could play wide. Sean Maloney was a wide player who could play number 10. So it's, it's understanding your players, their characteristics, in terms of how they can play the game, how they understand the game, and can they uh, kind of carry out the, the job that you were asking them to do and, and the FA Cup final we did and, and Belgium and the, the World Cup carried it out brilliantly to, uh, to win a, a, a massive game against Brazil but the, the game plan is, is one thing and, and it's, it's excellent to kind of come up with a game plan but that's not the, the kind of again the hard bit the hard bit is convincing the players and having the players with the right characteristics to carry that game plan out yeah, I agree with that. I think that it makes such sense in your head as a coach because you spend hour upon hour with your assistant coaches and coming up with this idea and this game plan, and then you probably get, if you're lucky, uh, you know, a, a week build up to to tell these guys what you're trying to do. So you have to be concise. You have to be clear with the messaging so these guys get it and they buy into it and, and they believe in it. I um, actually, I seen a thing the other day just to touch on that. There was uh, Bielsa. I love watching stuff on Bielsa and, and different coaches and trying to learn. But he done a talk and he says, "We're not coaches. We have to convince people. Mm-hmm. That's what we have to do. We have to convince players of our ideas." And and when I watched it, it was so 
simple, yet something I hadn't thought of before. But you're basically someone that just has to convince a group of players, whether that's to kick the ball up the pitch every time you get, whether to play between lines, whatever it is, you have to convince a group of players that this is the right way to go. And if you can do that, then you'll be a successful coach or manager. So, talking about successful coaches and managers, your early 30s, you're, you're retired because of your hips, you can't play anymore, and you find yourself, fortunately, I guess, uh, in a position of head coach in, in your early 30s. You're coaching the club you played for for a number of years, Wigan. And, um, how was that? And, and how prepared were you for that? How much did you learn on the job? And what was your early coaching philosophies when it came to that team which was obviously very successful winning the League One Championship well, I think you're never ready would be you know whether you're 32 like I was or, or 52 then you wouldn't be any more ready with 20 years education coaching whatever you, you still wouldn't be ready to, to be the manager I, I, had, I was fortunate I had Graham Barrow who was the coach under Roberto so I'd worked with Graham for five and a bit years, knew him really well, got on really well with him, trusted him in my life, and, and he was similar with me. So, you know, having an assistant manager like that was vital. He was 62 years old as well. I'd seen everything there was to see in the game. So if I hadn't had him, it would have been really difficult. I had to lean on him a lot in those early stages. But you are learning as you go, and... and you, you have to adapt, you have to be ready to kind of, every situation is new. The one thing I did say with all the staff when I, when I got the job, we were seven points for safety with five games to go. We hadn't won a game at home all season. So the chances of staying up were slim. Me being me, I believed we could. I believed we could stay up. I told the staff we can still stay up here. But I said to them, we're going to stay up the way I think Wigan should play football. And the way I thought Wigan should play was by passing, by being brave, by kind of defying the odds. That was the Wigan identity that I knew under Roberto. So we had we actually played, my first game was a Friday night at Fulham. We had two, two days to train. We trained morning, afternoon, the first day. We trained the morning. And then we, we travelled down to uh, London on the Friday but the first two days, I got the group in. And the fun thing was, you weren't taking over a, a team or a new team. You were taking over guys who you were sitting in a changing room with the day before. So I kind of, well, I, I knew their frustrations. I knew what they wanted. I knew kind of how they were feeling because I was sitting with them the day before. So that made it easier uh, to, to an extent. And, and we, I just said to them, we're going to play football. We're going back to the way Wigan needs to play. And we were averaging about just under 100 passes a game at this point. And we went down to Fulham and got 650 passes or something, played from back to, to kind of through middle to that final third. Brilliant. The final third, we were a bit... Uh, we lacked a bit of quality, we lacked a bit of pace, we lacked certain things to really hurt them. And mentally, we were all fragile. The whole group was really fragile. And we drew the game 2-2. But I'll never forget, the chairman came after the game and he was ecstatic. He said, how have you done that? You know, he couldn't believe that we could go from the team we were to that. And I said, I've just gave them freedom, I've given them belief to, to go and play. And it was it was actually one of the most amazing experiences of all the games I've managed. It was amazing to see a group of players transform that quickly uh, in terms of giving them that belief. But like I said, you have to convince them. And, and they didn't need a lot of convincing. And I knew that because I, I was in a changing room with them. Uh, so right from then, I had kind of set the stall out. We ultimately got relegated. I think we, we drew to... Won one and lost two of the remaining five games, got relegated, and then it was a case of kind of carrying that on. Getting a full pre-season was massive, uh, and because we went down, we lost basically all my teammates. I think we were left with about four players, which was was needed. It was done in a way that the players wanted to go. The club had to let them go financially. Uh, 
So it was nothing kind of personal with players. It was pretty easy to manage that situation. And I could go into the new season with a brand new group of players who didn't see me as the player. They came into the club seeing me as the manager and I think that helped and we went on. Still today, my only full season as a manager <laughs> where we went on and won the league, uh, which was an incredible experience as well because building a new team was difficult in a sense that I then had to start the process again that everyone had to get introduced. There was teething problems in the beginning. I remember a game, we had a game at home, we do now now, we were terrible, where some of the staff wobbled and they were like, mm, I'm they not sure. Want to play football? They were a bit... They were worried and I said, no, we're going to play. We were sticking to this. Nobody, nobody wavers. We keep doing what we're doing. And then about two weeks later, we got beat 2-0 at Gillingham, got battered, uh, were poor in possession and a, a few of the players with a team meeting where a few of the players were wobbling a little bit and again in that meeting Graham Barrow was outstanding uh, how he kind of stood up to that and, So how and, did you guys address that when when a player saying maybe Gaffer we should change the philosophy here and we should play a little bit different how do you how do you stand up to that? Because, you know, as we know, a dressing room's a fragile place. It's it's different personalities, different ideas. And if if, if there's they, these guys need to feel empowered, but if there's a moment where they feel like they're driving the bus, it can become a big problem. What was your, your uh, philosophy there? What did you do? Like I said, Graham in the meeting was brilliant. I think he he understood when he had to step in and, and, and kind of really kind of step up to the plate because he'd been a manager and he had so much experience and at times with confrontation as a man you do not want confrontation as a manager you can't go looking for it because it'll find you every single day of the week and that that meeting really the confrontation level was I could feel it kind of cranking up as the meeting was going on and at the right time he stepped in he, and no uncertain terms went through people and I mean like <laughs> through people as you know Graham can and I, I, I never said a word I sat down and I left them and it actually worked because then the next day I took it was the defenders were talking about playing out and we lost two goals in transition and they said oh but you're asking us to play out and, and we're too open and it was it was a cop out for players you know as well as I do players will look for the first excuse the yep. easiest option to, to kind of blame somebody else so the next day, I, I, we went up and we watched certain things for clips for games. And the players said for the clips, this was in a group meeting uh, in an office, the players said, when we watch it on the screen, it doesn't feel like that on the pitch. And I said, well, that's why I'm showing you, because I know how it feels on the pitch. He said, but look, and he said, no, we've got more space. We could do it better. So that was kind of a little turning point. I then took them up uh, to the training pitch and I got young kids to, to come up and chase them and, and play out. And all, that, all we did was possession, two-minute possession drills in their defensive third, not going anywhere. There was no target. Normally, we would have put a target, but I felt like I had to go a few steps back to kind of mentally put it in their head again. So we played two-minute possessions against six kids who would come in and choose for 30 mm. seconds, but they would come in and go all guns blazing for 30 seconds against three defenders and the goalkeeper. Yeah. And they never touched the ball once in about, I don't know, we must have went through it five or six times. And the kids were knackered because I was, I was almost coaching the kids to say, get after them, get after them, get after yeah. them. You know? And then we pulled them in and the boys, you could see them get a lift. The players that they were chasing were knackered. I asked them how they felt. They said, we're knackered. I said, could you chase like that for 90 minutes? They said, no chance. And it almost gave them a little bit of belief. You then go into the next game and get a positive result. And then, and then it just slowly builds back up. But there was definitely a wobble that we had to address it and manage the situation and, and convince them again that, no, this is the right way. You know, stick to it, believe in it, keep doing it. And it wasn't actually, we were, just before Christmas, we were about fifth. And we went on a 22-game unbeaten run from just before Christmas to the middle of March. And by the middle of the March, they were like robots. they just done it. They were brilliant. 
and I, I could just put them out on the pitch and play different formations and they carried out exactly what we wanted them to do and, and they were amazing and, and went on to win the league quite comfortably in the end considering the first six months were difficult but that is the challenge of, of bringing a new team together. Yeah, you've, you've got a brilliant phrase that I love called non-negotiables. Tell us a little bit about what that means with regards to tactical uh, essence. You know, what, are, what would the non-negotiables be for you when it comes to the tactics that you like your team to play with? Oh, well, in terms of playing out for the back, a funny story. I signed UC Yaskalainen, who yep. has over 400 games in the Premier League for many different clubs, quite often with Sam Allardyce, so he never done a lot of playing out for the back. It was yeah. pretty much you know, Route 1 uh, football. And the first time uh, I was putting him in for a game, I showed him how I wanted him to play. And he, he said, you want me to give him the ball there? And I said, yeah, give him it. And he said, and what if he, he's not going to take it? I said, well, he'll be playing. I said, he will take the ball there. And then I showed him how to move and get it back. And he was amazing. He just went, right. And he made mistakes. And I used to actually use him as an example quite often because he wasn't actually great at it because he hadn't done it a lot. Yeah. But his mentality to it was better than anyone in the squad. Because when he made a mistake, I used to love it. He'd go and get the ball, he'd pick it up, he'd put it down, and he'd just do the exact same thing in terms of playing out what I wanted. And then in terms of winning it back, we had we had one player, Yannick Wilchut, who was that kind of enigma that we, we let off a little bit. We, we, we kind of pressing, and, and he was our, our first pass on transition. He had pace and power. But everyone else was, you know, as soon as we lose it, we had to get it back quickly. We worked a lot in training on transition and winning the ball back. Uh, so there was a real kind of team work ethic that, that we, we got. And again, we, we signed some great characters. I mentioned Yusi there. Uh, our older players, David Perkins, was, was the same age as me, actually, at the time, uh, but a great character. I signed Stephen Warnock in January, which was massive in terms of getting us over the line and, and just giving us that uh, little boost. Craig Morgan was a brilliant captain. Uh, all our players who were at that 30, 30-plus 30 age were brilliant characters in terms of, you know, getting the group together and, and, and creating the right environment that I wanted. Yeah. Um, I I believe that formations are, are done in the modern game. I think that they're so fluid these days in terms of how you're trying to win the ball back, how you're possessing the ball. But if you had to pick your ideal formation as a, as a base to go and do the things that you'd be asking for your players, what would it be? The, the one I loved most with that team was 3-4-3. Uh, I think 4-3-3 and 3-4-3 give you the most flexibility yeah. uh, in terms of you, you can then adapt them from there. But uh, uh, We played 3-4-3 with that team. And like I spoke about Yannick, we played a bit lopsided. So Yannick would be a left winger and he would play high and, and on the touch side. And we had a boy called Michael Jacobs who could come in and play number 10. So we, we created an overload in midfield and the right wing back could go high and, and play really high. So the, the team played a little bit lopsided, but only, again, because of the personnel that we had. But I think with 3-4-3, three, three, you can bring both of them in and play with new, two number 10s and create a box in midfield that really gives you a, a big overload in the middle of the pitch if you have one wing backs who can play up and down and give you that width on either side. You can play... You know, like I said, with, with one coming in even as like a, a second striker and the other coming in as a number 10 with wing-backs that go really high. So I think the three four three gives you real flexibility in how you want to, to play the game depending on the personnel you have within that. You could play two out-and-out wingers and wing-backs that play tucked in as like midfielders. Uh, so, so it gives you a lot of options similar to the four three three. Uh, in terms of how you play that, do you play your, your uh, wide men high and wide? Can you bring them inside? Do you push your full backs up? There, there's so many options. I think I've, I've played 4 4 2, I think, twice in my life. I, I played it and I, I don't love it because it's pretty rigid. It's pretty, you know, it has 
great counter-attacking threat. Two banks of four, really difficult to break down. Defensively, you'd be really strong, but where do you go from there? It only gives you that. I like formations that are adaptable, and, and during the game, you can you can tweak it in terms of you could bring a player on. You could maybe start with two out-and-out wingers, and you could bring a player on who suddenly becomes a 10. And you know, You've not actually changed the formation. You've just changed somebody's characteristic within that formation. So uh, I'm not somebody that's hung up on it myself. Like, like you say, I don't think formations don't matter. The, 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 the style of play and the, the player's uh, characteristics within that are more important than, than the actual formation. The formation is just a byproduct of that. Any doubts to your style of play and uh, some recent jobs? You know, you, you, you've had a couple of tough times. Have you have you doubted the way you play in any way, or or what's uh, what's changed? No, not at all. I've I've constantly adapted it. Uh, once at Chesterfield, I played five four one. Uh, I man marked the whole opposition. I left one player on the ball. We played zero football. We won one nil, and, and I vowed never to do it again. Because <laughs> it was, didn't feel right. Didn't feel right. I felt uncomfortable. Uh, it was painful to watch. You were constantly on edge, and and it, it wasn't right. But it, it, we had to do it. We were down the bottom of the league. We were struggling. We had to find a way. At Partick Thistle, probably looking back, like my most proudest moments were probably there in terms of tactically how we set up. Like I said, we played 4-4-2, but we actually became a 4-2-2-2 because our two wide players were actually midfielders who played narrow and yeah. we had a few backs who could, who could get up the pitch. So there are really kind of all the experience I've gained over the, the few years that I've done it. I used that to, to keep us in the league was a was a real challenge and I had to come up with different ways of playing uh, to, to, to find the results to, to keep us in the league. And we, we managed to do that, again, pretty comfortably and, and try to then build a team based on that position and uh, recruited in the summer to, to go and do that and, and lost my job five games in the season. Uh, so uh, I've... I've not changed in terms of how I want to play the game. I've adapted it. I've got different tools that now I can use uh, if and when I need them. Uh, but I still believe in playing that way. But it takes time. It takes you know good recruitment. You have to get the right one characters, more important than anything, and the right abilities uh, to perform uh, the, the, the kind of tasks you're asking the players to do playing that style of possession football. Well, some fascinating insights here, Gary. I, I really enjoy that. I really hope you're back in the game soon. I think you've got so much to offer football with your ideas and uh, I'm sure you'll get another opportunity before we know it. So so thanks for joining me for the chat. That concludes episode one of Tactical Talks. I hope you enjoyed it. There'll be more to come. Please rate and review and let us know what you think. Uh, so thanks, Gary, and I'll probably talk to you tomorrow about more tactics. Thank you. Speak to you soon. See you, mate.